The boy bought pants from thrift stores that looked like the ones Ernest's dads wore on 50s TV shows. I would visit him in Berkeley long after he had new girlfriends, other girlfriends who weren't still high schoolers, just so I could disappear into the grayness and fog and spend a weekend in a messy old Victorian flat with giant textbooks and packs of ramen. And nobody had a real bed, only futons. To not own a bed, but amass piles of vinyl. To start your own band. What more could you want than a degree in theology and a hit song on college radio? That was perfect living, I thought. The way not to be in the studio audience of life. But I never did become one of them. I never completed my metamorphosis. Welcome to GrottoPod. I'm Susie Gerhardt and I'm here live-ish on a teleconferencing app with Beth Lissick to talk about her debut novel, Edie on the Green Screen. Beth has done a lot of things, actor, writer, MC, etc. And I encourage you to put her name in your preferred search engine to find out more because frankly, I want to cut to the chase and get started chatting. So hi, Beth. Hi, Suze. It's been a long time. And um, so once upon a time, we worked in the same office. Oh my God, San Francisco Bay Guardian. Yeah. <laughs> and then fast forward through Porchlight, some movies, some books, some other stuff that you did that was very cool. And you moved from Berkeley to Brooklyn? Yes. Uh, almost eight years ago now. Okay. So I was pretty recently. I, I feel like um, fo- you've been back here so much, I think with Porchlight and some other activities that it's almost like I didn't know you left. But um, But anyway, so... Sounds like you're getting a lot of hikes in these days. How else are you coping? <laughs> I think that's, I mean, that's the big one is that we, we're outside of the city now. So we're about two hours north of Manhattan. And so we, yeah, we've been going out on hikes when it's just starting to turn spring here. So it's been kind of rainy and, and gray, but today's beautiful and lower 60s. And, and so we went hiking and like everybody else, like us spending a lot of time thinking about the next meal, figuring out how to shop for the food and make the meal. And what's been fun about it too, is that my brother who lives in Brooklyn and is a year older than me and has two kids and I've got one kid, he and his wife and kids are up here. So there's seven of us. And sometimes uh, Gus's girlfriend, my son's girlfriend has been here too. She's coming up She's been away quarantining uh, with just her family for a couple weeks, and then she's coming up. So we've been doing a lot of game playing, cooking, movie watching. That oh, that's, kind of stuff. Yeah, that's so nice. More people, so it's kind of, yeah. I think we, we prefer, <laughs> there's more people to dip in and out of, and you know, it, we can't all annoy each other as much as we would if there were only three of us. Yeah, it's so great. You have a posse. It's like, um, you know, when we thought of survivalists, you know, we, what we saw in movies, it was always like the canned goods and the cellar and all this stuff, but it's really like the people. <laughs> Where do I store my people? Like I would have had eight more kids if I knew that I was only going to be with the people in my household for an totally. extended period of time. But anyway, we're here today to talk about your incredible first novel. Um, congratulations. And it was, you know, I, as I mentioned to you before, when I first started reading it, it was just so delicious. It was like, I can't, your observations were just so thick and so welcome um, about a part of San Francisco that a very tiny minority of people that live here remember. Yeah. But I'm one of those people. 
<laughs> I joke that I really did write this book for like between, you know, like 25 and 400 people maybe. <laughs> But yeah, you know, and I was thinking as a book about change and its discomforts, you know, Edie on the, on the green screen, it really is actually very relevant to these weird times that we're finding ourselves in. And yet, of course, it's not at all the type of changed world that I'm sure you pictured when you were writing this book and thinking about launching it. So what were you envisioning for the book launch? Well, I think... I did, I wanted to write about a person who, when everything that they've defined themselves around is stripped away, then who is that person? And that sometimes people are resistant to growth and change because they, they think they figured everything out or they seem kind of bold, but in a way they're, they're timid and scared. So I think that it's funny because I I hadn't, haven't given this much thought about how it's kind of pertaining now to all of us in our homes and just doing, we're all just left to our own, you know, devices to do the things that soothe us or that we enjoy. But I, I think I, pictured being able to share this kind of story with yeah people like you people that have been around or been in cities you know particularly san francisco but and bay area and and remember a certain time i don't like to be i mean nobody likes to be overly sentimental but but i i am sentimental about that time and about when i think back on it how that there was this, it felt like there was this kind of freedom that we had because we weren't so crazily trying to pay our rents or, or, you know, and, and we didn't have to work like dogs just to be able to afford food. And, and we could go out and go to the restaurants around the mission and around the city and enjoy ourselves in that way outside too, even though we didn't have a lot of money. And, and so a lot of it really does come down to how economically it's changed to live in a city and did you read that Gabrielle Hamilton um, piece? The, she's the chef of Prune in New York City. And she wrote this beautiful piece that was published last weekend because she had to close her restaurant down. And it's been in the Lower East Side for 20 years. But it was kind of, she's like, it's always been hard. I've always worked at this thing really hard. But I don't remember when it became so hard to just get over the basic obstacles of just you know food and living and childcare and all these things it just so anyway that i had those things in mind when i was writing it is just like about a person trying to overcome thinking that they had like figured something out and then really realizing like she was even more behind than a lot of people are you know she just hadn't given a lot of this stuff much thought about how she would ever get out of a situation if it wasn't going to be working any longer. What was the moment, like how long were you thinking about doing this particular story? And what was the moment where you said, oh, I'm going to make this a piece of fiction? I think, I mean, I've been working on it for really, like back even when I was living in the Bay Area, I did a reading, like a sister spit reading or something at the makeout room like 10 years ago, where I read a small part of this. And so I've been thinking about it for a long time, ever since the, you know, the first dot-com boom and it kind of on the end of that, how the city seemed to come back a little bit. It seemed a little, there was a little breathing room there for a while after 2001, 2002, a little bit. But I guess I was trying to write about it and I was feeling increasingly like bitter and jaded and and just you know complaining about 
I mean, really, it's like complaining about the yuppies in the 90s, except that I just never stopped or something. And so I started to reflect on that in myself and how I didn't like being that person. And I didn't want to just keep complaining about things. And it made it easier, I think, for me to, to fictionalize it and take somebody and really let them go with those feelings. After writing a couple books of memoir essays and stuff like that i just didn't like having to be pinned down on like what my thoughts were on this or that because i feel like like it my my opinions and thoughts change all the time and i don't think i'm a particularly articulate person at expressing that and I go a lot on mood and feeling and I'm not a deeply intellectual person. So, so it, it hurts me <laughs> to write in the first person and, and write memoir and then think, oh, wow, you have to be kind of, you have to be really bold and really stand behind these things if you're gonna say like, and you know what my thoughts are on the gentrification of San Francisco, you know? And it just, it just seemed like, ah, let's put it on this character who can be totally flawed and a mess and, and let her do the complaining. And so I think somewhere early on, I realized that it was gonna be fiction if I was, if I was gonna be able to finish it. I had to make it fiction. Yeah, that's so interesting to me because it's like when you think of fiction, I, I always think of like richness versus sort of clarity or stridency or whatever in nonfiction. And as you're talking, it's like, yes, you're, you, the big you can speak through multiple characters and the, the voice ends up being multiphonic. And you know how people are always asking fiction writers, so which of these characters is you? Yeah, right, you know? right, always. Yeah, and it's, it's like, like yeah. all of them in a way, right? Yeah. I, I feel that way. I mean, I, I, I really enjoyed that process of, of trying to think through another brain, you know, which I've never done that before, you know, in acting, I've done that in some of the, you know, I've just been in a few projects and films and stuff, but I, but it seems similar to me of just like, all right, what are the parts of myself that I can draw on and explore or explode or to, to try to get into you know, some, some other territory that if I were writing memoir, nonfiction, I wouldn't be able to do. One of the big pleasures of your book is, are all those, those terms from that time, the, the vocabulary. I was going to go through and make a list, but obviously dot com boom. Like, I don't even know if that makes that much sense to people now, but I have a little relic of the time, my pets.com mouse pad. <laughs> just when, like everything. I mean, I remember one time I was writing, I wrote a column for the Chronicle for, for SF Gate for eight years, I think. And I remember one of my little items in my column, it was like an around town nightlife column, was that I just counted the billboards between San Francisco and San Jose, how many of them had the word dot com on them. And I was just like flabbergasted and disgusted. You know, and it's just so funny that that's like, we remember when that just felt like this weird, I mean, to me, it felt like this strange assaults from like, who are these people coming in here doing that? But anyway, yeah, just everything, everything.com and having that be just the punchline in itself to just say yeah. .com is like a joke. Fern.com, you know, but then now yeah, it's not, exactly. it's not a joke because it, it is the reality now. But anyway, it's the segue into, I wanted to just go take a little tour of some of the people and places while maybe not naming their real life counterparts that are in this really okay. delightful book. I want to give listeners a sense of the times that Edie came of age in in the 90s and the time she finds herself living in 20 plus years later. So I just have a couple things. So the first one is, um, 
in the opening scene with the it pal <laughs> photo shoot, um, you have a character makes a brief appearance um, called Stella on Fire. Describe her. Okay, so Stella on Fire is based on some a real person who is a delightful, wonderful person who started making porn, I mean, 20 something years ago with a, a queer woman who, who was making porn with just real bodies in it. And it was really revolutionary, you know? It was like she was at the forefront of this online porn movement to just show people what real bodies look like and, and also be, have it be female directed. And, and um, so I just, I wanted just to do a little nod to her and, and just put somebody in there to, to just give a little bit of a flavor of like, that it was this new thing, that this thing that everybody just thinks is, you know, is everywhere and has been around forever, was like somebody who was actually just DI in this DIY way to putting this new thing out there. I love how in, in the description of, of that kind of world, the, you know, sort of sex positive world or whatever terms that we used to call it, you capture both the sort of like, oh, this is wild, but also, this is kind of boring, you know, that there's this, I, I guess, oh, you had a term sex nerd, which I thought was very funny. Right, right. Yeah. It's like, I said something like, like San Francisco sex nerd lifestylers were causing me an unreasonable level of mental fatigue or something like that. Like, like just that idea <laughs> of like how everybody was always like the nineties in San Francisco that, yeah, that whole sex positive thing. It was like, yay. But also like, all right, already. Like, so I, I wanted to just like have, put those kind of thoughts on her because it's not, I have nothing against it, but I also think there's something funny about somebody like her character, Edie's character, just like, it's like she grocks something, she, she gloms, she gets something and then she's already over it. You know, she just can't, she, it's, it's like, she's like, what's next? What's next? What's next? You know? So, so anything that she feels is just like a little bit tired. She just like has, you know, can't have anything to do with it. Do you have a copy of your book on hand? We do. Okay, good. So on the next one, much later in the book, Edie's reminiscing about a boy she remembers from high school who, to me, is very Gen X type. And so it's on page 156, and I was hoping maybe you could read a couple paragraphs. It's, um, it start, it's the first full paragraph on the page, starting with, there was a boy. I was hoping you could read more or less through to the end of that page. Okay, sure. I just love the description. Okay. There was a boy I went out with in high school, a computer genius who sculpted his hair with ivory soap and never studied, but got a perfect score on his SATs. We would make out in the park after school and drive around in his parents' old Volvo squareback to get tacos and ice cream. He played me music with sad lyrics by Femi men with big hair and became a vegetarian and taught me how to watch TV the right way. I hadn't realized that you could watch a dating game show in the middle of the afternoon solely for the purpose of laughing in disbelief at the whole wide world. It was a salve. It eased the invisible wire in my jaw. To laugh at the studio audience on the TV while they were laughing, rather than to laugh with the studio audience as they laughed. That was a revelation to me, especially when you could never figure out what the audience was laughing at anyway. I began to doubt most of them even knew. The boy bought pants from thrift stores that looked like the ones Ernest's dads wore on 50s TV shows. 
I would visit him in Berkeley long after he had new girlfriends, other girlfriends who weren't still high schoolers, just so I could disappear into the grayness and fog and spend a weekend in a messy old Victorian flat with giant textbooks and packs of ramen. And nobody had a real bed, only futons. To not own a bed, but amass piles of vinyl. To start your own band. What more could you want than a degree in theology and a hit song on college radio? That was perfect living, I thought. The way not to be in the studio audience of life. But I never did become one of them. I never completed my metamorphosis. I love that. <laughs> so, I mean, I think a lot of that to me was, was there's, you know, a lot in here about growing up in the suburbs and, and feeling like, oh, I'm not living yet. I've got to be where things are happening, you know, and, and when you have those little glimpses that come into your life as a, as a young teenager, you know, where you're like, oh, this is like another world that I haven't been shown yet, you know, and um, that's definitely based, that's kind of a, a combination of two people that I know, both who went to my high school and, um, and you know went off and you know kind of had these way bigger worlds than i knew were possible at the time and um yeah just that mode of perception that is so like characteristic too of gen xers which is just like i mean i don't know if it's because we came of age in kind of rougher economic times obviously wasn't the depression but we had this kind of like i say we as like not necessarily me but in the in the zeitgeist was just uh, that kind of ironic distance. But the reason that she comes to this reminiscence is about the haircut that she's going to have to get in order to go to the tech company job. And she's just thinking about hair and thinking about people with different hair or her generation when it was cool to have bad hair yeah. and how it's not cool to have bad hair anymore. <laughs> um, but so I was thinking about that character Deirdre in, you know, relation to like her coiffure and the, all of her presentation. So she spans in the book, both the then times and the now times. Uh -huh. um, I, w I wondered if you could just talk a little about her and what she is, who she is and what she means to you. Yeah. So Deirdre is Eden's best friend in the book and she is one of those people that I also think of as a very uh, Generation X type, where it's it's that retro culture worshiper, you know, who who is somehow able to live their life like always with beautiful vintage clothes. They drive vintage cars, you know. There's there's this whole world of really cool, great people who who are in you know in in the Bay Area who are involved in that kind of scene, and. I think a lot of it is about is about the presentation. I wanted to write about how interesting that is to me because I, I'm you know where you're always looking to see like what are the cracks in this armor? Like how can somebody actually be like wearing like wool and silk and and always have these perfect you know haircuts and 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 what is it like you know people who go like go to the um, noir film festival and are dressed for the nines and it's so charming like it's so i mean i love it i think it's it's glorious to look at those people but i'm always interested in like what do they just 
home and put on their sweatpants and 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 so what is so I, I wanted I wanted Edie to have a friend like that so that I could kind of try to get in there a little bit um, and and explore what that's like with somebody who is living who has decided to live a certain way and then just commits to it and it is becomes you know it's part of her and Edie asks her about it like is are you putting this on or how did you get that way and she's like I don't know I've always just been interested in this and this is just who I am now and it'd be really sad if this were some act you know and um so I think that that uh Deirdre still lives in her apartment that she rents and she has rent control and she's one of the people where it's working for them to be in san francisco on not a big income because they've got this rent control and they've still got this life that they've always been living just kind of like how Edie has but for Edie, it hasn't worked out and deirdre is the kind of person that she's made it work for her and part of it is an attitude of of not being uh not being so over over everything and 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 being so like it's like there's something about Evie that she doesn't she's never pursued any interests or passions really and so that's why when her stuff when when, it, when her life kind of falls away that's i think why she's so lost um so i wanted to give there have there be somebody who is like totally thriving and fine that way a little bit of um a little more of the observational stuff that i loved can there be a robust civilization where the graffiti is inspirational? <laughs> that was one of my lines that I loved. As I'm looking around at all, I mean, there's just been a prolific amount of inspirational graffiti at this very minute for yeah. reasons that we're well aware. Um, but tell me what that, that line means to Edie. I mean, I think it's so funny because just like a couple weeks ago, my son, who's 18, said to me, he's like, where did that come from that he was looking at some um, interior design thing of like somebody's kitchen or whatever. And there was some, some like tile that just said, you know, like dream, or, you know, and he's like, where did that come from? That idea that you put like a word in and, and, and it was like, I, I was trying to tell him like, God, it's, it's, it's like, comes out of self-help, but then in like an Edie's world, because I bet you remember this too, like around San Francisco, you would see those little name tag stickers and somebody's art project was just to put like almost absurdist stuff on these name tag stickers and put them all around. And I think that to me, it's like the things that sometimes you see one of those things on a day and you know, where it's just, like your heart is true or you know everything everything you dream is possible or something like that and you'll see that some days and if you're if it hits you the right way you're like god damn it that's right i can you know and and, and how funny it is to then also by the same token you can see that stuff and just think god this is utter bullshit like why are people you know writing all these like platitudes and and now it's supposed to be what, inspirational for me to walk down some alley where there's people, you know, who don't have homes and, and, and all these people struggling. And then you read this thing that just, it just seems so false, you know? And so I just kind of wanted to get at the duality of that, that it's like, it's so absurd and, and stupid to me. And then I am the kind of person that sometimes it'll just hit me the right way. And I'm like, 
I'm like, oh my God, that's right. Like I should dream and I should reach, you know, and like I should, you know, whatever, whatever the stupid platitude is and it'll, it'll, you know, and I'll feel it in some way. And so just kind of having fun with that. I'm a hundred percent the ED, like just, I feel refreshed when there's a very (laughs) seemingly true and negative message, but at the same time will find myself like tearing up at, right. Right, right. Yeah. It's like this beautiful, like, cursive handwriting, you know, that's like, everything's going to be okay. And you're like, oh my God. Yeah. And then also just like, what the fuck? Yeah. So maybe. Yeah. (laughs) So um, I I can't believe I didn't bring this up earlier as this photo (laughs) from Grey Gardens features prominently in my house. But um, I want to talk about the choice of the name Edie. Um, the mention of Grey Gardens early in the book. Um, central to the story is the idea of living in the remains of great times as they crumble around you, right. like the Bouviers did in the Maisel Brothers documentary that I love so much. Um, so here you have like sort of two Grey Gardens types of locations in the book. You have this San Jose house that's been recently abandoned by Edie's deceased mom and um, the warehouse that I'm calling the shitstorm warehouse space uh-huh. that. Um, Edie was living in. Based on reality. (laughs) Oh, really? Oh, yeah, that happened to me. (laughs) Really? Oh. Raining down from above, yeah. Oh, because I was like, this this is clearly just an imaginary situation that would never, I mean, I know there, we all know there have been horrible um, warehouse tragedies, but um, that particular type of one that had such a tragic comic effect. But I was thinking that Grey Gardens obviously is also inside Edie's brain, which is just the world she's created for herself that she wants to continue living in, but is really a trash heap. Um, Yeah, just some Grey Gardens thoughts from you. Well, yeah, I also am a huge fan of of that documentary. And I wanted to, I think in choosing that name for her and having that character choose to call herself that, I, I wanted, I did want it to be kind of a shortcut in a way, like I feel like that name is really charged in certain people's minds, um, just with Edie Sedgwick and, and with Edie Bouvier Beale and, and that, yeah, so a lot of it to me was like, oh, of course this is the name that she would choose for herself, because it's like, there's a, there's like a glamour, there's a glamorous, there, I, I think I'm just always been fascinated by the juxtaposition of, of glamour and trash heap. You know, it's the best. I mean, it just, it moves me in a way to just see things that are beautiful in their decay. And, and so I think with that, I wanted to, to just give a nod to it, really. I don't think I have much more to say, but just that I, I, I am huge. And I read this, here's a great Edie Sedgwick book that was compiled by the editor of the Paris Review at the time, which was maybe, this book was probably almost, it's maybe 10 or 15 years old at this point, but I think it's just called Edie. Just like trying to be on a scene, make a scene, be a person who who is seen out and, and but then inside it's like, what the mystery of, of what's actually going on inside of that person and you know as you read it's like she's kind of clueless about a lot of stuff and she she didn't pay attention to a lot of things and and uh i think she she was so uh glamorized and romanticized a certain thing that she sort of left part of her um her like 
brain out of the equation. Like she just didn't, she didn't pay attention, she didn't turn her attentions to a lot of important things. Uh, to bring Porchlight into this, there's a really, you know, Porchlight is the fun, loopy, long form oral storytelling um, series that you've run for how many years? 18. Yeah. Ah, I know. For someone's lifetime, basically. But anyway, that, that sort of world comes into collision with the short attention span world of, um, of the present day in a hilarious scene that evolves eventually a donut. Um, but first, um, former SF chief of police Richard Hongisto, former SF mayor Frank Jordan, and a certain Bay Area alternative Newsweekly. Um, it's a story told to like a dwindling crowd in a tech company coffee room. <laughs> Um, that just cracked me up. All I want to say is it cracked me up. I've been in so many situations with people sort of newer to San Francisco where I feel like telling a, a story of the olden days. Um, but even now, you know, that kind of stuff feels sort of like a footnote. Right. I don't know. I guess I just want to know your thoughts on creating that scene because it wasn't, it, it was, it, it doesn't have like, um, a punchline. It's kind of like the clown stuff you were talking about right. later in the book. Yeah, like I think, I think, so somebody told me that story in more or less the same way that it's in the book. Um, and I remember that time. It's this, you know, this story about, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a, you know, like you're saying, like it's kind of one of those San Francisco classic, you know, stories and everybody has a little bit of a different version of it. So one thing I wanted to do was put in a scene where Edie just tries to do what you're saying, like tries to tell a story about a time that all these people don't know about, but she's she's not trying to show them up in a way. She's not trying to say like, you know, in this towny way, like I was there and you weren't, like which was mostly been her attitude for a lot of it. She's really trying to relay a certain, uh, a certain, time and place and attitude but she's not succeeding at it and I just there's something that I just that's so comic and tragic to me about somebody trying to tell a story to people and it not going over and so I I, I and then I just wanted to put that story in there because it's you know the amazing thing about the loafer and the tower of donuts and the sisters of perpetual indulgence and it sort of just had every all these little elements in there that I love about San Francisco so um and, and I like the idea, which it does, it totally does relate to Porchlight because when I was writing it, I was thinking like, all right, somebody has told me this story. And if, so if I were gonna retell it, pretending I was them, like, or, but then filter through Edie, like, how do you write, uh, how do you write and basically a, a narrative oral story that, it, that feels naturalistic and just feels like, real dialogue you know like a like or a real monologue in that case you know you know obviously this is what i love so much about porchlight was just um people don't memorize stories they don't read them from a script they don't act them in characters they just tell a story the way that you would around a dinner table or at the dog park right. and they're stories that are at a the perfect length in my opinion um but yeah, I feel like you did a really good job of sort of oh. putting that to use in the book, all of your experience with that kind of storytelling, how it can go right, yeah. how it can go wrong. <laughs> right, right. And, and, and always one of the fascinating things to me about Light is, is always not just the story, but, and 
but the way that the person wants to be, and this isn't so much um, has to do with the, with this uh, particular story that Edie tells. I mean, in a way it does, but, but the idea of how when somebody's telling a story, how they want themselves, what's their role in the story and how are they perceived and what things do they leave out or add or embellish or, you know, switch in, in order to be a person who, who is telling a story and who, what does that say about the storyteller? You know, I love, I love that kind of stuff. Another thing about porch light that kind of comes through in the book, maybe a little, how it was always live and you never really know what's going to happen. You have the scene. Yeah. Things, at, um, yeah, yeah. Things can go wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you, have, you have the scene at the um, ball game where the other character is saying it's live and you don't know what the, um, Right, and it's going to be. That's why right, people right. like to watch sports. I bet when you uh, wrote that scene, you never pictured a world where, like, all professional sports were on hold. I know. Well, and this is the thing that I keep saying to all my friends when I'm talking about this, too, is, like, the weird part is not knowing what's going to happen or when or, I mean, we're all just sort of in this weird liminal zone right now, you know, and I write a little bit about that, too, because I do love that feeling just being in this kind of weird, like you're trying to stay balanced in this place that you don't know where it's going. I thought that one time about sports because I was never a, you know, big sports fan. And then I started watching baseball and, and it's just like, it's kind of relaxing in this way that it's like the ink, the outcome doesn't really matter. I mean, I would say that's a hardcore fit, you know, but it doesn't matter. And you don't know what it's going to be like, not a single person knows what's going to happen when you're sitting there watching it. There's something about that I find very soothing. <laughs> Baseball is a funny one because the athletic out, you can kind of forget it's a sport. It just feels so right. leisurely. It's yeah, like, yeah, wait, yeah. is he kind of, yeah, there, a yeah, lot yeah. of people are standing for long periods of time, yeah, but yeah. it puts you into this like zone. And when it's on the radio and the announcers are like, they have those beautiful, like, oh, I love the Giants announcers. Yeah. Just those incredible voices and those like, really long stories where like are we at a ball game <laughs> because he just did like a 12-minute anecdote about something completely unrelated but there, but you love it anyway all right I think I'll just go through one other little nugget from the book I wanted to pull out yeah. was um the Eileen Warnos reference oh, so yeah. there was the unnamed movie star who dated the unnamed rock star who <laughs> May or may not have visited a friend of mine in our rickety Victorian flat in the 90s. Um, but anyway, that movie star made another film, Young Adult. And um, I was curious if you'd seen that film, because it's also about a character stuck in the past. Yeah, I love it. So it, sometimes when I'm writing, I want to name names, and sometimes I don't. And then this one, it's so obvious who it is. It's Char I'm talking about Charlize Theron and Stephen Jenkins from Third Eye Blind. But I like there's something that's fun to me about not naming names, especially when it's pretty easy to guess. Cause it's like, it just feels like in that case, I think Edie just doesn't want to say it. Cause she's like, I'm not going to talk about movie stars. You know, like that would be a thing that she would have like a, like a position on that. Like, like, I don't, I don't need to be giving them more publicity than they already have. I'm not going to talk about a movie star, but in this, so but it is based on, you know, talking to Charlize Theron at, at Bruno's one night. And, um, and I did see Young Adult, and I loved it. I loved that movie. And there is, I, I remember seeing that while I was, you know, 
came out in the time that I was writing this book and just being like, oh, there's so much in there that feels very um, familiar to me from this is that kind of person who just has a certain amount of obliviousness um, that worked for them for a while. And, and it's so that it's, and, and that they feel entitled and they come from like kind of a privileged, you know, place and they just don't understand how a lot of things work because they're so used to just having everything laid out for them, you know? And um, so, yeah, her character is so terrible and great in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, little that was sorry, a little digression into just an appreciation of, of yeah, her yeah, in that yeah. movie. She's, yeah. she's oh, right. Amazing. And then yeah, yeah. But but um back to your book. So maybe one 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 last thing, which you know, there's just so much to love. So I'm I'm you know yeah. gonna cap it off here. But I don't know. This is this is a really minor detail. So but I thought it was curious to maybe talk about what, what you were getting at with it. So Edie has the experience of the pipe breaking in her warehouse shit falls all over her stuff um i can't exactly remember how it happens but she ends up using a shopping cart um she retells the story of using a shopping cart and she gets kind of yelled at for um appropriating a term that's very important to a group of people when actually literally she was using it for that very purpose so i mean to me it was like the irony, the way that sort of irony was used or the way that language was used in the 90s has been completely turned on its head. And it's, it's hard for people of a certain age to, to sort of readjust even to just the use of words. So I don't know. What were you getting at with that moment of misunderstanding? It was just interesting. Well, I think... I think in that, also based on reality that I did, you know, had the shitstorm in the warehouse and had to get everything, try to save the things that weren't being rained on. I mean, you know, I, you know shit water, piece of toilet paper, like just look at, and, and I got this shopping cart to, to roll down the street. And, and it was, it was one, of, I guess it was knowing that I had a, safety net, you know, me, Beth Lissick had my parents who were, you know, in San Jose, like, and I was like, if, if uh, you know, I've always had a safety net, if anything ever would go wrong in my life, I could move in with my parents. Like that's, it's just, that was, that's there. And, and I think that there's something about living in a city and, you know, I've always been a paycheck to paycheck person, you know, it's like, yeah, I do have a safety net in my parents, but it's not like I have any money from them making my own living and all that stuff. But, but I think, that, so there's something about being in a culture and being around a lot of people who are poor, desperate drug addicts and, and living among living among them. I mean, it's like that were, those were my neighbors and for, you know, years and that's, and, and so I think just trying to write about what it's like to not be there, but to think you have an idea. And maybe you do have a better idea than a lot of people, you know, you do, you do have a better idea than a lot of people, but you're so, it's, you're so not that, but then part of your identity is wrapped up in that. And so I think as she moves or, you know, as I did move my, 
my belongings, you know, after, you know, shit rained down on them into a warehouse. So it's like, it was, I had a, just a certain like feeling that I was like, ah, this might be my edge. This might be <laughs> my bottom for, for being able to live the way that I've been living. And, and maybe I need to figure out a way to live where I don't, where I'm not in these situations. And, and, um, so, but then it's also like, well, you want to live in a big warehouse space where you can have rock shows and you want to do, you know, so how do you do that in the city? And so I think I, I just wanted to put that in there too, as sort of the, her, her bottom and her end of like, all right, this is, this is not, she's reached this point where this is like not comfortable for her and somebody's calling her out on it uh, for, for, you know, thinking that, that she's part of this population that she's not. And, um, because I because it's so fraught, you know, and, yeah. and talking about it now, it's just like, oh, it's so hard to talk about all these all these things. Like with like with race, it's like she just is doesn't she just has been so cut off to like racial, you know, like her her white privileges at a certain level where it's like she doesn't even she doesn't she doesn't understand so many things that she thinks that she's got everything figured out, you know. So definitely that was yeah, that was a little bit of a nod to that. So okay. Uh, wanted to end with a question. So I'm picturing, you know, the movie you could make about trying to launch your book at this time. <laughs> so what's the sort of elevator pitch? Oh my God. Really? About trying to launch the book at this time? I mean, I, part, I think being a mostly, you know, DIY person in a lot of ways. I mean, there's, I had a couple books that came out on bigger publishers, but, but I think it just prepared me really well. Like, I think that everything we've been talking about and how we sort of lived and how we came up, like it, it, it has prepared me for my book to come out just during this time where I had to cancel the whole tour. And I'm just, you know, I feel like such a idiot that I, I don't want to be posting on Facebook about it, but it's the only way that I can really get the word out. Like, you know, it's, it's like, I appreciate doing this podcast so much more than I think that I would have if I were also doing a bunch of other stuff. Like now all of a sudden I'm like, oh my God, thank you so much <laughs> for having me, for talking to me about it because it's, it's, you know, it, it's a hard time to try to do that. And, and, um, yeah, so I don't know. I think that the yeah the elevator pitch really is just like woman crawls back into her hole and tries to make something else. <laughs> That's sort of how I feel. Just oh, get to work on something else. You know, if this it's, isn't the time for this, and it's fine. It's been so fun talking to you. Honestly, you're um you know you're such an alive, you know in person person has a, you you have such great um ability to entertain people on a real stage. So. I especially, I mean, I feel for the loss of the opportunity for people to, you know, see you in person. Maybe, maybe, maybe in some time, you know, things pass, you can actually get out on the road with this. Yeah, I know. I'm hoping. Stuff. I'm hoping. I'll definitely come to the Bay Area and do stuff because that's, that's, you know, it's, I have so, so many friends there and I feel like it's, just, yeah, it's, it's Bay Area book. Thanks so much for coming today, Beth, being part of Grottopod. That's our show for today. Grottopod is produced by George Higgins, Ben Marks. Daniel Pierce, Beth Weingarner, Andrew Braithwaite, and Rita Chang Epic. The music is by Sugartown. Grotto Pod is concocted in-house at the Writer's Grotto when we're in-house, but out of house <laughs> when we're out of house. Please review and subscribe to Grotto Pod in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host today, Susie Gerhard, and thanks for listening.